Okay, so this is the first podcast recording for Philosophy of Politics of Work. So I want to say a couple of things briefly about how the class is structured. Um, I know there are two different sections, both asynchronous and synchronous. Uh, but for both classes, uh, every week, or almost every week, there's one week uh, where we watch a movie, thankfully, as a bit of relief. But uh, aside from that, every week there is a reading or a group of readings uh, that you can find on the syllabus. And usually, um, except when we read from books, usually they're available on Brightspace as well. There's a reading. There will be a podcast lecture about the reading. And then there will be a discussion uh, board for that reading. So for every week, you are to complete the reading, listen to the podcast, and contribute to the discussion. The only difference between the two classes, the asynchronous and synchronous, is the synchronous class also has a Monday night 5 o'clock Zoom meeting to uh, further discuss the reading and what's going on for those who can who can make such a thing. That'll also be recorded and available to those who can't make it for the Monday class. So there's that's really the only difference. Um, so uh, for this week, we have two uh, readings with a third optional reading. The, the two readings are um, Matthew Crawford's Shop Classes Soulcraft, An Inquiry into the Value of Work, and then a piece from Time Magazine uh, on the booming, how the booming economy is leaving service workers behind. And as I mentioned, I think in the introductory video, this is kind of continuing the thread that we started with our introductions um, in terms of uh, ideal jobs, because we're going to talk with Crawford, why he considers being a motorcycle mechanic or owning his own motorcycle repair shop, I guess is more specific, to be an ideal, what, what sort of things it satisfies and how it works for him. Uh, but also we're going to talk about service work um, and how these two things kind of uh, uh, are both the extremes of the ideal and and in some sense in the more difficult conditions, but also how they're connected and some of the transformations that are going on in the U.S. economy and economies globally as, sh as workers are shifting from jobs in manufacturing to more and more service jobs, which is something that we'll be discussing throughout the semester. And in some sense, this these first reading, especially the Crawford reading, is a little bit like a preface of a book in the way in which a preface of a book, like a work of uh, nonfiction, sociology, philosophy, etc., will usually give you a very quick overview of its overall argument before going more into depth. In some sense, the Crawford reading touches upon uh, some of the overall arguments we'll be looking at over the course of the semester. And as you might see, he even refers to some of the philosophers we'll talk about later uh, in the semester, such as Hannah Arendt and Alexander Kojev, uh, and so on. And so uh, Crawford's book, which came out in 2009, um, is in some sense both a personal reflection of his own transition from uh, graduating with a PhD in political theory, working for a uh, think tank and, and leaving it all 
to open his own motorcycle repair shop. And it's also a larger argument about the attachment and, and value that's placed on mental labor or immaterial labor in our society, in our culture, you know, as he talks about the decline of shop class in um, high schools. If we were in person right now, I would ask the class, um, hey, how many of you had shop class in your high school? And we see how things are going with that, uh, but we're not in person, but it's worth thinking about as we go through this book. Um, so these two things, I want to talk about both his arguments. First, his argument about his own personal decision to leave a think tank um, and go into motorcycle repair, and then his overall argument about, about the value of that kind of work uh, culturally um, and economically. So one of the first things he talks about, you know, is this sort of, uh, and this is on page five, is this anxiety he had um, I mean, anxiety might be too strong of a word, but the sense that when he worked for a think tank, he wasn't entirely sure what tangible good or service he was providing. Right? They would write papers uh, advocating different policy positions and so on and so forth. And maybe these would be read. Maybe these would be acted on. Hard to say versus the very clear, you know, he gives this visual thing of, of a motorcycle that hadn't run and it's starting um, and this clear sense of uh, having done something in the world. Um, and on uh, page 14 and 15, he discusses Alexander Kojev, who we'll be discussing later, um, his version of this distinction. Uh, and he says, the man who works recognizes his own product in the world that has actually been transformed by his work. He recognizes himself in it he sees in it his own human reality. In it, he discovers and reveals to others the objective reality of his humanity, of the originally abstract and purely subjective idea he has of himself. And, and later in the next paragraph, he talks about boasting, right? And I think this is a big distinction for Crawford, that when you work on something in the world, um, whether it be repairing a motorcycle or wiring a house for electricity and so on, there's a definite and clear sense that you've done something and you've done it well when the lights come on, when the motorcycle starts. Um, so that's one of the values he attaches to this kind of work. The sense that he has a clear sense of the effects he has in the world. And he contrasts this with the idea that if you don't have a clear sense of what you do and how it affects the world, you can always boast or lie about that. Um, you could always say, you know, he could always, back when he was working at the think tank, he could always say he was the most important person at the think tank, that all the ideas were really his. And most people talking to him wouldn't know if that was true or not true. Um, so there's a sense in which uh, working on an object is associated with objectivity, which for Crawford is contrasted with subjectivity, and part of the problem with subjectivity is it can collapse into an almost narcissistic sense of one's own self-importance. He, he attaches this, and this is an interesting other part of his argument, which gets us into the larger social issues. In the sh 
of the distinction between craftsmanship and consumerism. As he mentions, you know, part of the decline of craftsmanship in society is the creation of more and more things that cannot be repaired, um, that are made to be thrown away. He mentions like old Sears catalogs, including schematics um, uh, for how a toaster was made so you could you could fiddle with it if you wanted to, and how you know, even modern automobiles um, aren't even made to be tampered with, right? They have a kind of black box, as he says, around them. And you have like iPhones, you can't even replace the battery. The sense that uh, there's less and less for us to do with our objects, uh, except consume them and then use them up. Um, and he, as he mentions, you know, part of the, that consumerism means that, um, you know, part of the meaning of the object is now tied to how it is advertised, how it is sold to us, and uh, how it is promoted versus how we use it, right? If you think about the distinction between how one might assess a tool, um, and a tool, you assess it in terms of how well it works, which is why, you know, you don't often see uh, a lot of advertising budget spent on tools. I mean, there is some, but uh, because a tool is assessed in terms of how well it works versus, you know, um, a consumer good, would be clothing or even uh, uh, an iPhone, which is sold to us in terms of how it might change how we see ourselves. So once again, this distinction between subjectivity and objectivity. The second point of Crawford's argument I also want to talk about is he, he, he really wants to challenge the notion that I think was a big notion um, in the, the last part of the last uh, uh, century. And this idea that, you know, industrial jobs uh, jobs of manual labor were going to go away and everyone had to pursue college degrees and everyone had to pursue intellectual labor. And he makes a different distinction around that um, on, on page 34 in the sense that for him, the real distinction is not so much between head and hand, but between uh, work that can be outsourced or work that is so dependent upon rules that machines can replace it, right? He mentions, for example, for a long, long time, um, you know, being an accountant, being able to do people's taxes was a pretty reliable job. Um, but now with, since that is more or less, I mean, there's some interpersonal aspect when you interact with their customers, but more or less that is, following a set of rules and computer software is much better at following rules than human beings are. So you, you do see the, the, the elimination or the threat of the elimination of tax preparers, you know, even things like, um, paralegals, uh, because so much of being a paralegal is being able to read through documents and find, uh, particular citations and so on that that is something a machine can do really, really well, better than a human being. So the division is not so much between head and hand, between intellectual labor and manual labor, but between that which is so uh, uh, 
repetitive and regular that a machine can do it, whether it be a machine processing taxes or a machine producing products versus those things that involve some kind of uh, skill in terms of being able to not so much directly apply a standard rule, but to be able to figure out and solve particular problems, right? As he points out, this, another part of his argument is that um, repairing motorcycles, and it should be mentioned, he's talking here about repairing, you know, antique and other very specialized motorcycles um, involves a great deal of mental work as much as manual work. As he mentions, you know, one of the things he has to figure out is not just whether or not something might be going wrong, but he has to figure out with dealing with old motorcycles where there's risk of um, doing perhaps more damage in trying to assess the situation. He has to figure out whether or not it's worth dealing with uh, screws that might be stripped out or, um, and so on. Um, he has to kind of assess every specific situation. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, one of the questions I asked for today is, you know, what makes repairing motorcycles good, according to Matthew Crawford? What makes it good for him? Um, and, and here we begin to see some of the different ways we can assess and think about work, right? One of the, the differences that he points out is that there is a sense of the object fixing the thing lets me know that I've done the job well. But there's also a sense, and this is something that Crawford also talks about. He talks about, you know, wearing his shirt or seeing people wear his shirt. He also talks about the fact that he does get social recognition from what he's doing, right? When he, when he says, I repair motorcycles, people immediately know what he does and know what the value of that is versus when he would say to strangers, you know, on a plane or whatever, I work for a think tank. People would just kind of, mm, yeah, whatever, um, you know, working repairing motorcycles has a very, you know, immediate, even a child will understand that is. So he does also get not just recognition from the object, but recognition from other people. That's one of the other values. And we could talk about um, uh, the other values that, that Crawford gets from this and why it's a good job in the discussion. But I want to kind of segue into the piece about service work, because I think you know, as Crawford says in his piece, the jobs that aren't going away, that are neither being outsourced to other countries or automated or digitally uh, 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 reproduced are jobs that involve um, dealing with specific situations like repairing motorcycles versus um, uh, manufacturing them. And here we also see, as, as, as the article from Time Magazine points out, um, one of the other jobs that has become very dominant in uh, the US is the rise of service jobs, waiting tables, etc. But looking at service jobs as a job which isn't going away gives us a very different picture than the picture that Crawford is painting. Um, in the sense that uh, uh, one of the things that uh, service workers have to deal with, uh, and I'm sure a lot of you have dealt with this, um, tip-based uh, uh, income means that a lot of their income is dependent upon um, 
how other people evaluate their jobs and how other people are feeling about their their day even. Um, it's a very unstable uh, form of income. You can't rely on knowing how much you're going to make. Um, and as and I attached this kind of as an extra reading, and I do think it's interesting, it was a report that came out from a bunch of different uh, restaurant workers about uh, restaurant work in the age of COVID, um, where uh, service workers have been placed in a very difficult position of often being the people who are in charge of enforcing mask mandates, social distancing, etc. Um, and it's just, I mean, you can just think about it. It's a very awkward position to be in, to both be relying on tips from people and being the person who has to tell people, hey, you have to wear a mask or, hey, you can't uh, uh, sit there, you're too close, and so on and so forth, uh, which is why in some sense you see an absolute failure of these kind of protections. Um, as, as the survey mentions, um, uh, many people in the restaurant industry report that um, that their employers are not following uh, safety precautions and guidelines. Um, and, 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 or, or even when they are, they're in this awkward position, which as the article uh, begins with, uh, where customers want to see, let me see your face so I know how much to tip you. Um, and, and the increase in something that the Time Magazine article discusses as well, the, the increase of sexual harassment in the age of COVID was the thing that I found very surprising. I mean, I understand why people are uh, getting more, um, why it's difficult to enforce rules and rely on tips. That makes sense to me. I don't really understand um, uh, why uh, sexual harassment would increase in the age of COVID, but that's what, that's what the, the survey says, that's what the data says from the survey. Uh, which is very surprising and very depressing. I, I don't know personally. I've not, I've not stepped into a restaurant in months. I've only you know gotten takeout, um, uh, and so I haven't seen what the situation is. But the fact that it, in some sense, uh, everything is talked about in the time piece in terms of the uncertainty of, of of wages, having to deal with levels of harassment in order to earn tips, has apparently only increased in COVID. Um, and I should say, like, like I said, this week is kind of a preface. Um, in the coming months, um, after we go through our, our philosophical survey of, uh, of, not survey, but kind of our, our different uh, philosophers on the, the meaning of work, uh, we will get more into what we're calling workers' inquiry, where people will, will talk more about the kind of jobs people, uh, uh, you people, and the people in the class are doing. Um, and more into talking about that sort of stuff um, in a few weeks. But I just want to throw that out there this week as something, uh, like I said, as something of a bit of a preface to uh, later classes. So um, one more thing before we, we move on. So for next week, uh, we have readings from Plato and Aristotle. So we're going back to the beginnings of Western philosophy and the history of different philosophical reflections on work. Um, I mentioned in the syllabus, and this only comes up twice, that when it comes to the Plato, you have a choice. You can read the Plato and or the Jacques Ranciere uh, chapter from the philosopher and his poor. Now, the reason I gave you that choice is, and I don't know uh, what previous philosophy classes people may have taken, 
Plato's Republic is taught a lot in philosophy classes. It's kind of a classic. Although people usually don't talk it, usually don't teach it to talk about work. Um, and and that's a strange kind of reading, but it, it's I think work is very central to the book. But we'll talk about that next week. Um, but for those of you who've maybe read The Republic once, maybe twice in previous classes, and you're kind of been there, done that, um, the Jacques Rancière piece, which is a reading and interpretation of Plato and the discussion of work in Plato, might be interesting, um, or it might be interesting to add to the reading depending on on how you feel. Um, but what we're really going to talk about uh, next week with both Plato and Aristotle um, is both how they understand work, how it contributes to the formation of the individual and their perspective on themselves and the world, how it relates to the structuring and ordering of society. And since we're dealing with, you know, texts written in the fourth century BC, we're going to talk about to what extent their ideas about work still linger and still shape how we think about work. Because that's, you know, that's partly what we're doing in this first part of the class and discussion of the history of philosophy work. We're not just kind of looking at a museum of, you know, old ideas. Um, we're interested in all these ideas insofar as they maybe continue to shape how we think about work and maybe how they need to be re-examined given the technological and economic transformations of work itself, although it's interesting, as we'll see with Aristotle, he has a very uh, uh, unique and actually prophetic view about about technological change uh, and its relationship to work. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. All right. Thanks for listening.